Well, church, last week we began a new sermon series uh, that we'll be in for the next couple of weeks entitled Blessed Are the Peacemakers. Acknowledging that we live in a world that is mired in conflict, with most of that conflict being handled quite poorly, uh, which ends up contributing to the problems that we face, not helping to eliminate them. We acknowledge that we want to be a people who respond differently and who breathe peace into the places where we go. And so in this series, we are looking at the biblical wisdom and instruction that is given to us by God for how to handle conflict well. In a way that leads to the life and the peace and the flourishing that God intends for us to experience. Last week, we began by considering the foundational motivation for entering into conflict resolution. What is it that would cause us to risk entering into conflict to the difficult, contentious, energy-draining work of conflict resolution? And the answer that the scriptures provided was that every conflict situation that we ever encounter is really an opportunity to glorify God. The scriptures gave us a perspective change to remind us that the presence of conflict in our lives is not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually a given in a fallen and broken world. But that what is good or bad is how we respond to that conflict that we encounter. And God has given us instructions in his word for how to respond in a way that brings him glory. As we trust him and obey him and imitate him and acknowledge him in the midst of our conflict. That was the the philosophical and, and, and big picture motivational reason for why we want to be peacemakers. In order to glorify God. Well, this morning, we're getting down into the more practical, tangible, nuts and bolts ideas, not of why we want to be peacemakers, but of how do we actually do it. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them with me to Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, as we consider together the starting point of conflict resolution. This instruction, it comes to us from Jesus' most famous teaching in all of the scriptures, which is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus takes basically everything we know to be true about life in this world, and he basically turns it all upside down onto its head. In it, he's painting a picture of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And in most cases, it is exactly opposite of how things work here in the kingdom of man. And so it begins with the Beatitudes in in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus describes those who are blessed in the kingdom of God. And unlike in the kingdoms of this world, where it is the rich and the powerful and the confident and and the independent that we celebrate, Jesus says that in the kingdom of God, it is the poor and the meek and the those who mourn and the hungry and thirsty for righteousness And those who are persecuted and the peacemakers who are blessed. And then he goes on to teach about how we interact with one another. That it's not enough just not to murder, which is the standard in this world. But we're not even to be angry with our brothers or sisters in God's kingdom. Or how it's not enough to not commit adultery with another person. 
But in the kingdom of God, we're not even to think lustfully of one another. Or how it's not enough to love your neighbor, which is actually still quite a high bar for this world. But in the kingdom of God, we're to go far beyond that, to actually love even our enemy, which seems impossible. In each and every instruction, Jesus is taking the ways of the world and he's turning them upside down. He's flipping them on their heads. He's showing us that there is an entirely different way to live. And when we come to chapter 7, he carries that pattern into how we handle conflict as well. In chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And then he says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And again, what Jesus is saying here is exactly opposite of how things work in our world. When we encounter something that is wrong in the world, our natural inclination is to point the finger, to to assign fault and blame, to hold people accountable for what they've done wrong. We see this spirit running rampant in our society currently in in, in what's known as cancel culture or or call out culture, where people's transgressions are being identified and highlighted and broadcast in order to tear them down and eliminate the behavior or the influence that we don't agree with. We are looking for ways to tear one another down, searching for reasons to accuse and to condemn and to destroy But what Jesus is teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount is to do the exact opposite. He says that before you point a finger at someone else, you need to first point the finger at yourself. Before you assume that the problem is out there with other people, you need to first realize that the problem is also in here, in your own heart with you. Before you look at the speck in your neighbor's eye, considering the ways that they may be transgressing the laws, you need to consider the plank in your own eye and acknowledge the huge ways in your heart, in your mind, in your life that you aren't right before God's holy laws either. According to Jesus, this is the first step of any conflict resolution. To get the log out of your own eye. And the reason that we need to begin here is because of what we heard in our New Testament reading from Paul in in his letter to the Romans. In the beginning of that letter, he is describing the guilt of all of humanity before God. And he warns us not to judge other people because we ourselves are guilty of the exact same things. And when you apply Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount to this idea, you, you see how true it is. 
I mean, you may never physically murder someone in your life. I hope you never physically murder someone in your life. But you've murdered a thousand times in your heart. You may never commit adultery physically against a spouse. But you've done it with your eyes countless times. You may have never posted a denigrating racist or sexist statement on the internet. But you've thought it in your mind more times than you would care to admit. Whatever it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says there is no temptation out there except that which is common to man. We all know the same temptations. We all commit the same types of sins. They may look slightly different in how we carry them out, but they all have the same destructive effect on our hearts, on our minds, on our lives, on our souls, and in our world. And so when we pass judgment on someone else, we are actually condemning ourselves. There was a profound example of this over the last couple of weeks when the Los Angeles Raiders football coach was, was basically forced to resign from his job because of offensive language that he had used in emails that were discovered from almost a decade ago. In response uh, to his coach's firing, Derek Carr, the, the quarterback of the Raiders, suggested that perhaps everyone should have all of their old emails read. Every owner, every executive, every coach, every player. Open them all up. And see who's not guilty of this type of behavior. Unsurprisingly, there wasn't much enthusiasm for that idea. But Derek Carr had identified this reality. That we are all inclined to the same types of temptations. And guilty of the same sins. This is why Jesus tells us not to judge others. Lest we also be judged. But instead, we are to take the log out of our own eye first. We are to be honest about and to engage in and to deal with our own issues first. Before we ever even begin to consider talking about someone else's stuff. And when we do that, when we consider our own issues before engaging in someone else's, when we get the log out of our own eye before we begin to look at the speck in someone else's eye, this has a profound impact on any type of conflict that we will ever engage with. And it does so in two main ways. The first effect that this will have on a conflict situation is that in many cases, It will cause you to be able to overlook an offense. Our Old Testament reading this morning from Proverbs said that this is to our glory, to overlook an offense. And the reason that it is to our glory is because when we overlook the wrongs of others, we are imitating God's extraordinary forgiveness towards us. For our God is a God who does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. If the Lord had chosen, if the Lord has chosen not to treat us as our sins deserve, then we glorify him and we imitate him when we show that same kind of mercy and forgiveness and kindness to others. And in the same way that we are blessed when our offenses are overlooked, 
So are others blessed when we overlook their offenses. We see this played out in a profound way. In the event of the woman who was caught in adultery from John chapter 8. In that instance, the scribes and the Pharisees brought before Jesus a woman who had been caught having an affair. And according to the Jewish laws, she deserved to be stoned to death for her transgression. That would have been the fair and just outcome for her according to their laws. But in the midst of their accusations, Jesus bent down and began to draw with his finger in the dirt. And then he rose and he said to the woman's accusers, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he bent down and began writing on the ground again. Now we don't know what it was that Jesus was doing, what he was writing when he was down drawing in the earth. Many have presumed that he was listing the names of the accusers and their own transgressions. Pointing out to them the logs that were in their own eyes. Reminding them of their own guilt and perhaps the punishments that they deserved. We can't know for sure. But whatever it was, in response to Jesus' words spoken and presumably written, every accuser went away until it was only Jesus and the woman remained. Confronted with their own sin. Having considered the log in their own eye, they realized the wisdom of overlooking an offense of the woman caught in adultery. And as a result, her life was radically changed from condemned to death to forgiven and free to live. This is the power of overlooking an offense. This is often the first and the best option that we should consider in the face of a potential conflict. To overlook an offense. And in order to determine if if this is the right course of action for you, you can simply ask yourself the question, is this really worth fighting over? (laughs) Having considered your own issues and your own guilt, your own sin, your own contribution to the problem, to ask yourself, is this really worth fighting over? Do I want to be judged by the same standard? Ken Sandy and his book, The Peacemaker, offers two conditions in which it is always appropriate to overlook an offense. The first is if the offense has not created a wall between you and the other person, or if it's not caused you to feel differently about them for for more than a short period of time. Is this affecting your relationship in a lasting way? That's the first criteria. The second criteria is to consider if the offense is causing harm to God's reputation, to other people, or to the offender themselves. If it is, then it needs to be addressed. But if it's not, you don't need to pursue it. That's the second criteria. And so if those conditions are being met, if relationship is not being hindered, and if no harm is being done, then it is almost always worth... Choosing to overlook someone's offense. And for those of you with a strong justice bent (laughs) that have a hard time overlooking something that someone did without the wrong being acknowledged and consequence uh, being associated with it in some way, you need to realize this. That overlooking an offense doesn't mean that no one pays for the wrongdoing. Instead, 
It means that you're willing to bear the cost of it on their behalf. Rather than making them pay for what they did wrong, you're willing to endure the cost of the offense yourself. And if that doesn't seem right, if that doesn't seem fair or wise to you, then consider, isn't that exactly what God has done for you in Christ? For the fact that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities doesn't mean that the consequences of our sin aren't dealt with or that our iniquities aren't addressed. Instead, it means that God in Christ bears them for us. Justice is met. Someone always pays. But here it is met by Jesus bearing the effect of sin in himself rather than forcing us to do so. When we overlook someone's offense, we are following the example of Christ, recognizing that we've been forgiven much with no personal cost to ourselves, and so we're willing to forgive others much at no personal cost to them. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. But sometimes that's not possible. And it would not be beneficial to the parties involved to do so. And so while Jesus' instruction about getting the log out of our own eye undeniably calls us to consider our own contributions to a conflict first, it does not prohibit us from eventually getting to the speck in our brother's or sister's eye as well. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus never says, don't consider the speck in your brother's eye. He says, first, consider the log in your own eye, and then you can see clearly in order to get the speck out of your brother's eye. And so next week, we're going to begin considering how to approach others with whom we have conflict. When confrontation and reconciliation are necessary, and when a speck in someone's eye does need to be addressed, we're going to engage that next week. God's Word gives us wisdom for that too. But before we get to that, we need to realize that this first step of getting the log out of our own eye is essential for that part of the process also. And getting the log out of our own eye doesn't just help us to overlook an offense. It also helps us to engage in conflict when it is necessary. And this is the second benefit of getting the log out of our own eye. If an offense does need to be addressed, it will soften that conversation and make it far more productive. To understand that, I want you to remember back to the very first conflicts that we encounter in Scripture that we talked about last week. Between Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and his youngest son, Ham. Last week, those were examples of the inevitability of conflict in a fallen and broken world. But this morning, I want you to take a moment and to use your sanctified imagination and consider how their situations might have turned out radically different if instead of dealing with their conflict poorly, they had first taken the log out of their own eye before they engaged the speck in each other's eyes. So consider Adam and Eve. I mean, how different do you think their conversations might have gone? If rather than pointing the finger in blame at Eve for having given him the apple, 
if Adam would have owned his part of the problem first? How different would it have been if Adam had first apologized for desiring the apple himself? What if he had begun with apologizing for failing to lead spiritually, to protect from, from, from protecting his family from spiritual harm and from the attack of the enemy? What if he had apologized for failing to wash his bride in the word of God, reminding her of God's truth and of his goodness and of his warnings? What if Adam had humbled himself and rather than pointing his finger in blame at his wife, he first pointed his finger at himself? Do you know that famous picture of Eve and Mary where Eve is standing with the apple looking so lonely and sad and downcast and broken and all alone? If Adam had responded by first taking the log out of his own eye, I doubt Eve would have been standing all alone in that picture or in history. Or what about Cain and Abel? But what if Cain, rather than having murdered his brother, had instead assessed what was going on inside of him and taken responsibility for the role that he played in that conflict? What if Cain had confessed his covetousness over his crops and acknowledged his unwillingness to give to God of his first and of his best? What if he had apologized to Abel for his jealousy over God having accepted Abel's offering, but not his own. How might things have turned out differently for them? You know, if you go on and continue to read in Genesis 4, Cain goes forth from that point to become a vengeful fugitive, suspicious of everyone he ever meets. How might his heart have changed if rather than always viewing himself as the victim... He acknowledged his responsibility in his conflicts. His brother would have been alive, for one. His name wouldn't be tarnished throughout history. He'd be an example for us, not a warning. But what about Noah and Ham? What if Noah, rather than being angry at Ham and cursing him for exposing his nakedness, What if Noah had taken responsibility for his part of that conflict, apologized for his drunkenness, and for even putting his son in a position where Ham's transgression was even possible? How different might things have been between the two of them? You know, Ham's descendants went on to become the Canaanites, the mortal enemies of God's people. And it's understandable given how Noah treats Ham and the curse he places upon him. But it's not that difficult to imagine how it all could have turned out so very differently. When we enter into conflict, having first assessed our own culpability in the matter, we have the power to totally change the temperature on a confrontation and to completely change the outcome for everyone involved. Taking the log out of our own eye allows us to engage a situation with humility and with gentleness and with empathy and with perspective. It allows us to see ourselves and the other more clearly and more truly. And it allows us to respond to one another in kindness rather than in contentiousness, which is what every conflict resolution needs. 
Because as we heard from Paul in our Romans reading, it is kindness that leads us to repentance. God's kindness towards us in Christ leads us to want to confess our sin and to want to be reconciled to Him. Our kindness to another will have a similar effect. Ken Sandy calls this the golden result. He says that the golden result is a corollary to the golden rule, which calls us to do to others as we would have them do unto us. The golden result says that people will usually treat us as we treat them. If we blame others for a problem, they will usually blame us in return. But if we say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, it's amazing how often their response will be that it was my fault too. People generally treat one another as they are being treated. When God moves you to first get the log out of your own eye, it is rare to, uh, that the other side will not fail to do the same. When we can let go of our illusion of self-righteousness and freely admit our faults, we experience the gift of God's amazing grace and of His boundless forgiveness, and we can extend those gifts to others as well. Church, this is the first step in becoming a peacemaker. And if you've decided that you want to glorify God in the conflict that you encounter, begin doing so by getting the log out of your own eye first. If you don't, you will be as hypocritical and you will look as foolish as someone with his clothes on backwards giving fashion advice to others. Let's not be that person. The world doesn't need any more of those people. But it needs a whole lot of peacemakers. So let's be the people of God's kingdom. Let's be called sons and daughters of God because of the way in which we engage in the conflicts in our lives. Let us get the logs out of our own eyes before we consider the specks in each other's. This will be for God's glory and for our good.